This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. Today, people are working to innovate and do more in their workdays. But coming up with fresh ideas and quick responses can be tough. Introducing Grammarly Go, a product offering personalized generative AI communication assistance that will change the way you write. With just a few clicks, Grammarly Go can ideate, compose, and rewrite thoughtfully, accelerating your productivity and unlocking your creativity. Go to Grammarly.com slash go. In the funny, melancholic, and weirdly moving new film, The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti plays a widely disliked teacher at a prestigious boarding school in 1970. He's forced to look after the boys who can't go home for Christmas break, including one kid who's a particular pain in the butt. It's the latest film from Alexander Payne, who wrote and directed Sideways, Election, Nebraska, and other films. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Len Weldon, and today we're talking about The Holdovers on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Sun and Ski Sports. They're celebrating National Bike Month in May with a big giveaway. Enter in-store to win a Cannondale Trail mountain bike or online to win a Haro Flightline 1 mountain bike. Cycling isn't just transportation. It's a boost for physical and mental health. Join them for Bike to Work Week from May 13th to 19th. Make every ride count this National Bike Month. Gear up at Sun and Ski Sports, where adventure begins. Visit sunandski.com. Joining us today is Andrew Limbong. He's the host of NPR's Book of the Day podcast and reporter for the Culture Desk. Hey, Andrew. Yo, what's up? What's up? What is up indeed? Let's get to it. The Holdovers is set in a snooty New England private boys' school in 1970. Paul Giamatti plays Paul Hunnam, the strict curmudgeonly professor of ancient history, who is wildly unpopular with the students and the faculty. As the school empties out for Christmas break, he's left to look after a handful of students who are forced to stay on campus through the new year. The only other adult around is Mary, the school cook, who's spending her first Christmas without her son, a graduate of the school who was recently killed in Vietnam. She's played by Davine Joy Randolph. 
One of the students hanging around is Angus, played by newcomer Dominic Sessa. He's a smart but troubled young man who's dealing with the loss of his father and his mother's or hasty marriage. Together, these three broken people bicker, bond, and share secrets with each other. It's a lot less sappy than it sounds. Alexander Payne directs a screenplay by David Hemmingson. The Holdovers is in theaters now. Andrew, kick us off. What'd you make of it? Okay, listen. I wear blue blazers with brass buttons. I'm wearing them right now. It's true. I wear yeah. Oxford cloth button-down shirts, you know? Uh-huh. This is made in a lab for me like all the warm <laughs> prep school you know I don't, I don't go to prep school shout out public school right i didn't go to you know these right. like sort of boarding schools but i love these settings of old dusty schools and i love like old dusty men and so you know what i've got some caveats about the movie that we'll talk about later but i think overall i, I really enjoyed it all right cool what about you linda yeah, I loved this. Mm-hmm. Pain is not always right up my alley, by which I mean Alexander Payne, not Pain the Feeling. Um, <laughs> I can find him sometimes so acidic and so arch that it becomes a little bit disconnected for me emotionally. I think there's a mm-hmm. generosity to this movie that maybe I don't always get from him. And I think he really uses these actors wonderfully, what becomes kind of this three-hander. I really loved this. And the more I've thought about it and sat with it, kind of the more I've appreciated it. Well, it's unanimous. I mean, I think this is a Christmas movie for the rest of us. You know, this is like (laughs) curmudgeons assemble. But given the setup, I mean, I came into this exactly from a different place from Andrew. I was very wary because I have been burned before. Yeah. Linda, you're not going to hear me go into my Dead Poet Society rant again because I think we can all accept that that movie turned the teaching of history and art into a live, laugh, love refrigerator <laughs> magnet and it is to be abjured. I watched this film in a defensive crouch, waiting for it to spill over into rank sentimentality, into lessons learned because all the ingredients are there, um, but it never did. And of course it didn't because even though Payne didn't write the script, he did direct this and he is director for me of restraint, of a very clear-eyed kind of uh, approach and specificity. So, you know, as you guys mentioned, he finds these moments of emotional connection between his characters. He lets the actors do their work. He lets the writing do their work. You can almost feel him isolating those moments, setting them up, and then kind of like a dealer in Vegas, just kind of clapping his hands and stepping away from the table, right? Yeah. And yes, he is a satirist at heart. I mean, I'm going to push back a little into, for me, he's not the kind of satirist that blisters the wallpaper, but I do agree with you very much that generosity here is the magic word. Everyone in this film gets to look dumb. Everyone gets to look smart. Everyone's a buffoon. Everyone's wise, which is just the way life is. And I think that's why it works. It's funny you say restraint. That's not a word I associate when I watch like election or something. Right. Sure. I think in some ways election is is a little bit of an outlier in terms of yeah. the the main films that he's done. Uh-huh. I think that Glenn is right that the he's not the kind of wallpaper peeling satirist, right? But election kind of is like that. But I, I don't know that the rest of his work is. You know, there is a kind of gentleness mm-hmm. about some of the other films. I think Nebraska in particular is a, is a pretty gentle work. Mm-hmm. But this to me, you know, mm-hmm. you mentioned Dead Poets when we came out of the screening, Glenn, and I... I was ready to get into a boxing match with you about that because I think this is kind of the, you had kind of said dead poets if Robin Williams was Paul Giamatti. And to me, this is like the anti-dead poets, right? I had a very good teacher once who told me, good teachers want students, not disciples. And this is a students, not disciples movie. It is not about the magnetic charisma of a teacher. It certainly isn't. (laughs) Drawing students into the subject matter itself. It's really about, I'm sure I'll come back to this in some 
lyrical fashion, but it's it's really to me about grace. It's really about people finding a way to have these moments of grace um, that come to them in really different ways. But I want to hear about uh, Andrew's caveats. Yeah. So I I, I saw this uh, interview Payne did talking about the movie, and, and he said that you know he'd originally envisioned this as just the teacher and the boy, and that was like the center of the movie. Mm-hmm. And then David Hemmings comes in and he says, "Listen, we got to add like the cook character, which definitely makes the movie more complete. Because if it was just the teacher and the boy, I, I think it is a dead poet society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know." If she gets enough play mm-hmm, compared mm-hmm. to the other guys. I've been going back and forth on it. At first, when I was walking out of the theater, I was like, ah, I don't know if she like really had enough like growth, if there, there was a lot of there there for her. I'm thinking about it now. Yeah. I'm a little bit more generous towards the movie, but I'm still like hesitant about it. And I was wondering what you guys thought. No, I hear what you're saying. We, we call it a three-hander. It's more a two-and-a-half-hander. Yeah. But there is a pitfall, a big pitfall he avoided here because I worried when the movie started that Mary was going to be like set up as the kind of sole voice of reason, which would be giving into a different kind of cliche. But she gets to be not as raw and unsteady and real as the two other main characters, but there is a definite effort there. Linda, what do you think? Yeah, I thought about this too. And I mostly came down on the side of being really happy with the way they developed this character. And it's because I don't think it's an accident that the first images in this film are of memorials in the school's chapel of young men who died in previous world wars, of whom there are a number, right? And then Mary's son is the only one, apparently, that they have lost in the Vietnam War. I think it hangs over this film that somewhere between World War II and Vietnam, rich people Mm -hmm. found a new hack to keep their kids from going to war. And I think that all of the people in this story live with the tension that's created by that, right? There's a moment when Giamatti, the when the teacher is pointing out to Angus, to the kid, they're having a conversation about who does and doesn't die in war or get injured in exactly. war. So to me, her wisdom, and this goes back to kind of what I was saying about grace, I think of that idea of grace as being at peace with yourself, being at peace with the people that you love, being at peace with your choices, and having healthy connections to other people. You know, Giamatti is playing a guy who has never had that over a long, long life. The kid is playing somebody who's just figuring out what that might look like and how to get there. She is playing somebody who has had that, and she has lost it because of the death of her son, and now she feels disconnected. To me, her greater understanding is because she's the person who has had healthy relationships before. What I didn't want was her to be imbued with, like, deep, natural wisdom of some unnatural kind. But I think Mm -hmm. what she has instead is she has a different kind of experience than they do. She has experience in close, loving, functional relationships, mostly the relationship with her son and and with her family. And that, I think, is what sets her apart from them. So in the end, I felt okay about it. Yeah, that brings up something I wanted to talk about a little bit more. You you pointed it out there. Like in – A lot of films like this set in a place like this. The privilege is not something that's directly addressed all the time. Yeah. Uh, Here it's certainly a factor. It's certainly called out. And I went back and forth and maybe that kind of feels like it calls out in a 2023 way more than a 1970 way. 
But, you know, the truth is that any period piece would do that. The trick is not to make it obvious. Did that work for you? Yeah, it's not like they played like Fortunate Son over the <laughs> Right, the stuff, right. Yeah. Right. I mean, because I, I think it works because it only counts for a select few of them, right? Like mm-hmm. the other boys in the school, if they fail, yeah. it's not like, a, like oh, Paul G. Mata failed you, you're going to war, like it is for the boy in the movie, right? And so mm-hmm. I think like the way the class differentials are, are played out is really like thick in a lot of ways and complicated because there's that subplot about how uh, Giamatti stood his ground, or Paul Paul rather stood his ground and failed one of his students, who was like a, a higher up son, right? Mm-hmm. And that sort of like plays through the whole movie. I, I was thinking of all the whole time. I was like, wait, did he like low key send that kid to war? Mm-hmm. Not really. Probably the chances not. of that actually happening aren't happening. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. it's not not an option. Yeah, it's always there, and which which I felt really saved it from being treacly. I will also just say, I think for the purposes of developing these relationships, I also really love the visuals of this movie. We talked about the setting and the school. I really like the way that at the beginning, the school does feel really institutional and it feels kind of cold at the beginning. A sequence I really liked where Angus goes around and explores the school by himself. And you get the sense of kind of what it means to him to be able to do that in this kind of like very, very, very slightly transgressive way. And the more that the three of them are there together, the more it becomes more homey. Mm-hmm. And the there's a the gigantic dining room where the three of them are eating their meals ultimately really is shot like a family dining room and they're able to get a very family dinner kind of feel out of it. I really like the way that the locations and the look of it are handled. And it's so heavily influenced by the fact that through the vast majority of it, there's snow on the ground outside. So you always have Mm -hmm. this kind of interestingly bright gray feeling that you get from being around big windows when there's nothing but snow Mm -hmm. outside. I think it looks great. I really liked how it was edited. Mm -hmm. Boy, I know we're going to talk about this, but I loved all three of these performances just up, down, All over. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, let's talk about the vibe of the film, though, because, I mean, that is you get pops on the soundtrack, you get a graininess in the film, you get all these desaturated colors. So the whole vibe of the movie feels very period specific because the plot is kind of shaggy, kind of loose. Like a lot of pain films, it's more character study than like this kind of steel trap plotting. And in terms of approach, I mean, I think there's probably a bit of daylight between Payne and somebody like Wes Anderson. But this is like, what if Wes Anderson didn't have to obsessively straighten the fringe on the carpet before he left the house, right? What if Wes This is definitely a little more of a Wes Anderson-y yeah. uh, Alexander Payne movie. That is true. Yeah. And the soundtrack, I can't speak to the music uh, supervision here, but Cat Stevens, Badfinger, The Almond Brothers, The Chamber, Shocking Blue, Artie Shaw, kind of that vibe with you guys. At first, it was like a little bit like cosplay. Okay. Mm-hmm. When, when, when that opening shot you hear, you hear the boys singing in the choir. I didn't like read too much into the plot going into the movie. And I didn't know if it was supposed to set be set today and like just like look like it was the 70s. Mm-hmm. But like once it settles into itself, I think it... it you know, envelops you and I sort of buy it. You know, like I got to say, great pipe acting, great SIG acting, you know, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of those little details. I was like, great oh yeah. Who's acting. Yeah, a lot of great drink. It's like, oh, some of these people have had experiences, you know, <laughs> which mm-hmm, I think sell it. Mm-hmm. What'd you make of the music, Linda? Well, the music at the beginning struck me as, I think similar to what Andrew was saying, struck me as a little aggressively inaggressive. Um, 
It struck me as a little uh, assertively strummy, we might say. And I kind of felt like, okay, I'm choking on my latte here. It's okay. (laughs) However, I do think as you went along, there's some beautiful music in here. And I think it just goes together with sort of the whole feel of the the movie, which I just kind of sunk down into and really just ultimately felt so... It felt so warm to me in a way that I really appreciated. Yeah. I mean, if there hadn't been a Cat Stevens song in this thing, I would have been like, feels like you had a Cat Stevens song. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. We're going to talk about the performances. Let's take them in turn. Giamatti. I don't think anybody would say that this character is outside of his wheelhouse. Uh, and it is reteaming in with pain since Sideways. Mm-hmm. So this is a lonely, broken man. But this is a much gentler take, much more sympathetic than Sideways, certainly. What would you guys make of it? Yeah, I think – in a lot of ways, this this did feel like a sequel of sorts to Sideways. Mm-hmm. He definitely feels more n- nobility in the role of a high school teacher in this movie. And it feels like, even though it like kind of sucks because kids suck and kids are annoying, he mm. takes this job seriously. And you can see him, he's not as hateful as his character in Sideways is to the job, you know? And, and he definitely like really cares about these kids. Um, and I think he's, Giamatti's, at a three, a lot more in this movie than I usually mm-hmm. ever see him in when he's usually at like a seven or an eight, you know, this mode of <laughs> But there's a lot of moments where he's like, he's just like toned back and, and I really appreciated those depths to his performance. Yeah, I think it's really difficult to play a character who has as many unpleasant qualities as this character has because you have to kind of believe that people, including kind of good and decent people, don't like him. Mm -hmm. But for the purposes of this particular story, you also have to believe that he has the capacity for, again, for grace. Mm -hmm. I so wanted that for this character. And I think the way that they move him kind of in the direction of finding that, which is ultimately, in a way, it sounds so obvious, but I think they make it really lovely that his path to that is to be able to engage in some kind of exchange with other people. Mm -hmm. Not that it's transactional, but some kind of like emotional exchange with other people. There's a moment where there's sort of an emotionally complicated crisis going on. And Angus, the kid, comes and gets Giamatti Mm -hmm. and brings him to where the problem is. And Giamatti just goes and closes the door Mm -hmm. to sort of give privacy to this developing situation. And it's this small kindness that you sense that maybe a couple of weeks earlier even maybe he wouldn't have kind of had the Mm -hmm. clarity to get to but he's now thinking of himself as partly responsible for these people because now this is like it's not a subtle thing this is like a little family and he feels a responsibility and through that responsibility he feels that kind of grace and i think it's so hard to make somebody lovable who isn't likable yeah and they don't suddenly decide at the end now everyone likes them yeah i just i wow i really liked this performance a lot yeah it's so important that this character we see at the beginning who is kind of big and broad and oversized becomes everything but that uh and you mentioned dominic sessa as angus man so much is riding on this kid uh both on screen and off i mean this is Sessa's first on-camera performance. He plays the kid as kind of an open wound. Uh, Andrew, what do you think? There's a way that he holds his body where you can <laughs> yep. tell he's pretending to be confident. Yeah. The way that he like moves and, and like he's, he looks like a tall kid and he looks like kind of lanky, but just there's the, there's a way that he just like moves around 
where it's definitely kind of like a put on mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is so mm-hmm. tragic in the teenage boy sort of way that you know you gotta love it absolutely yeah as andrew mentioned he's a complete newbie they found him as the star of his high school theater program which is like of course <laughs> and also what a great story i mean come on what a great mm-hmm. story that guy who is like the star <laughs> of your theater program gets discovered and gets to be in an Alexander Payne movie. How many people are heated right now? Though? <laughs> How many people just like, oh my God, Dominic, Dominic got it. But this is like in the same way that you can see that he's faking confidence. What I thought was remarkable about this movie, especially at the beginning, is you go back and forth. If you're used to kind of types in high school movies, you go back and forth between like, oh, so exactly. he's a cool kid. Hmm? No, 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 he's a dork. There really yep. is this very confused fake confident, but also sort of deeply feeling and also a screw up. And it's one of my favorite performances Mm -hmm. by a new actor to me that I've seen in a really long time. Mm, Absolutely. So Davine Joy Randolph, you look at her IMDb page, it's it's a lot of comedies. Uh, Alexander Payne said he was drawn to her by seeing her performance in Dolomite Is My Name, where she played a very different <laughs> character. Um, but he said comic actors have a natural sense of rhythm, and I knew that she would be right for this part. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, you definitely need some comic chops to put Paul in his place for this movie, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there's certain reasons why she's the only person he respects and she can get away with some of that. But I think that does has to do with her comic timing. Linda, the scene you mentioned in that really pivotal emotional moment, I think is my favorite scene in the movie. And, you know, it all rests on her, mm-hmm. like leading up to it where she's sort of like, breaking down slowly and you can see something is bubbling up and something's about to happen but you don't quite know what and when it happens it's such a it's not even sad and tragic it's just like it's very normal in a lot of it ways is. you know how many times you just like need a minute and it's like not that big of a deal but it is a big deal but you just like need a second to like cool it first and yeah. and she she plays that moment so beautifully i think that's the sort of the most outward manifestation you get of this very painful situation that she's in because she's lost her son. You don't ever get the version of that that you might think you're going to get in a movie like this. It's a little mm-hmm. bit smaller. It's more contained. It's happening at an inconvenient time in an inconvenient place. And I think in that way, it's it, it resonated so much with me because I am a person who will have like a big crying jag in the middle of somebody's party. It's just a thing that has <laughs> that, that that can happen. You know, the path is narrow to get this exactly right without tipping over into any of the kind of bad tendencies that um, that I think movies have had with black women in kind of caretaker roles in the past. Mm-hmm. Boy, her instincts are so true. And I think, honestly, when you get a comic actor, one thing that happens is they can keep the comedy a little bit smaller because they're they're yeah. more confident and they it can stay really small because she understands it better and she has more experience and she can scale it better. So her performance of the stuff that's really funny, I think, is a little bit more considered than it might have been if you had somebody who's not an experienced comic actor who's who's trying to put over, you know, comedic, overtly comedic material, you know. Yeah, this movie stays with you. Uh, It stays with all of us in different ways. And we want to know what you think about The Holdovers. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. You think we're going to be talking about this again come Oscar time? I hope so. I hope so, yeah. That brings us to the end of our show. Linda Holmes, Andrew Limbaugh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. We want to take a moment to thank our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus subscribers. We appreciate you so much for showing your support of NPR if you have not yet signed up. 
and you want to show your support and listen to the show without a single solitary sponsor break, head over to plus.npr.org slash happy hour or visit the link in our show notes. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fatima and edited by Mike Katzif. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy, of course, and Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we will see you all tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.